Dr. Peterson's online self-help program, The Self-Authoring Suite, has been featured in O, The Oprah Magazine, on CBC Radio, and on NPR's national website. It has been helped, it has helped over 150,000 people resolve the problem, problems of their past and radically improve their future. Would you please welcome with me Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. Thank, thanks very much. So, today's theme is understanding, and so what we're going to try to do, build, building on the last talk, is to understand what's been happening, I would say, under the subsurface of easily perceptible reality, you know, the world manifests itself at many layers. Um, you can tell that when you get into an argument with someone, especially someone that you love, because partly what you start arguing about is exactly what the argument is about, right? You need to specify the level of analysis before you can move forward properly. And specifying the level of analysis is a very difficult thing. Uh, so I'm going to try to specify, I'm going to try to make the case, or I'm going to make the case <clears throat> that what we're seeing unfold around us right now in this era of increasing polarization is the consequence of a very serious war of ideas that's really been going on for, I suppose, 150 years and in some ways longer than that. And that it's necessary to understand the war of ideas to understand the polarization and maybe to see a road clear to ameliorating it. Um, talks entitled Identity Politics and the Marxist Lie of White Privilege. And I want to make a very careful case for the validity of that title. Uh, because one thing that's useful to note is that there is no question that some people have more privilege than other people. In fact, you might make the case that every person has more privilege in some manner than, any other, than every other person. Uh, so you have to give the devil his due, so to speak. That's a very important thing when you're dealing with ideas. You can't just throw everything away, even if it is part of something that you, that you feel deeply is, runs, let, let's say, contrary to, that runs contrary to your deepest moral instincts. You have to give it its, its place so you can formulate proper arguments. So we're going to try to do that as well. So, <clears throat> We'll start with an analysis of the Marxist worldview, and I'm, I'm going to try to get to the bottom of it to some degree. So, for Marx, you could, history itself could be viewed as a never-ending sequence of battles between the oppressed and the oppressor. Now, Marx was more specific than that because he took an economic view of history, a deeply materialistic view of history, and believed that people were fundamentally motivated by economic uh, motives. Um, I never did buy that because I think one of the problems with that theory is that it doesn't ever answer the question what it is that people value. It, takes, it assumes value implicitly and, and associates that with economic well-being, but that's by no means obvious. It's certainly not psychologically obvious that that's the case, and it's not actually how people behave, by the way, from a psychological perspective. So that's a big problem, but 
It doesn't matter. It's, it's a theory that has at least some hypothetical explanatory power and no shortage of psychological attractiveness. That's certainly the case. So anyways, the basic Marxist idea, as I'm sure most of you know, is that um, the social world and life itself is a battle between those who have and those who, ha who don't have. And that the reason that those who have have is because they take it from those who do not have. And that that's the most appropriate way to view history itself, I suppose stemming back as far back as you can imagine. And that it's also useful to think that way if you want to conceptualize the proper future, because the proper future would be one in which that essentially unjust division would be eradicated so that everyone would be equal in some fundamental way and so that there wouldn't be an owning class and a working class, let's say. Um, now, <clears throat> you know, I had some sympathy for that viewpoint when I was a kid and I think it does have to do with what the last speaker calls empathy. The world's a rough place, you know, and there's no doubt that some people have it better at some times than other people and some people have it, have lives that are so unbearably tragic that it beggars the imagination and other people seem to float through life with nary a worry, although I think that's also exaggerated because no matter how well off you are economically, you're still not really free from the fundamental tragedies of life, right? Your, your loved ones still get sick and, and struggle through life and you're still subject to aging and, and eventually to death, so um, it's not like even at the upper end of the distribution, you're necessarily protected against the essential tragedy of life. And I also think that that's another problem with the Marxist worldview is that it implicitly makes the case that the cause of human suffering is social injustice. And, and that, that's true in some sense in that social injustice can amplify suffering, but it's certainly not the cause of suffering. The, the cause of suffering in some sense is life itself and its fundamental limitations. And, it's really important to make a distinction between those two things because otherwise you can easily be tempted to assume that you could bring the utopia in if you only adjusted the sociological conditions properly and there's just no reason to assume that that's a reasonable perspective whatsoever as far as I can tell. I think it's actually a form of existential cowardice to assume that because it doesn't grapple with the real problem and the real problem is that, well, the real problem is as religious people have um, stated over and over throughout recorded history is that life itself is, is suffering. That's a fundamental truth. I mean, it's certainly the truth, for example, that's, well, it's a Buddhist truth, a fundamental Buddhist truth, and it's certainly graphically presented in the idea of the crucifixion. So, and that's a hard pill to swallow. It's a bitter pill, pill to swallow, and it's comforting, I suppose, to think that if you just adjusted society properly, that all that suffering would go away. But there isn't really any evidence that that would occur. Um, now, <clears throat> I read George Orwell when I was a kid, probably about 17. I wrote, wrote, read a book called Road to Wigan Pier, which if you haven't read, I would, I would seriously recommend. It's a, it's a, it's a great book. Um, it's in the same line in some sense as Animal Farmer 1984, um, although it's more journalistic. Orwell went to this coal mining town in northern, northern UK called Wigan Pier and documented the lives of the working class coal miners who lived there. And I mean, they, to call their lives difficult, it's like, you're not even scratching the surface, right? I mean, they were old by the time they were 40. Most of them had no teeth by the time they were 30. 
uh, they lived in abysmal conditions. And the coal miners themselves, who of course developed black lung quite early in their life, had to crawl through short tunnels three and a half miles just to get to their eight-hour shift, and then, which was, wasn't paid for, the, that was the commute fundamentally. Orwell, who was a rather tall man, said that after 500 yards, he could hardly stand up. And of course, then they had to, I don't know, you don't call this crawl crawling, it's not exactly walking, it's stooping, I suppose. It's not a normal form of ambulation, but in any case, they also had to do that after their eight-hour shift. And I mean, that's just the beginning. And so, you know, Orwell, who was, he, he engaged in the kind of argument that I think it's Brett Weinstein has coined the term steel man. You know, you, you can make a straw man out of your op opposition, which is a very bad idea, because it weakens your ability to think, but you can also make a steel man out of your opponent. And so you even amplify the power of their arguments if you can manage it, so that when you formulate a rejoinder, the rejoinder is as powerful as it could possibly be. And of course, this is exactly what Orwell was doing. He was saying, look, like, if you had any sense, you'd have compassion for these working class people because their lives are just in, almost indescribably brutal. And, but then, you know, in the last half of the book, uh, he wrote this for the Left Book Club, which was a socialist book publishing uh, entity that put out, I think, a book a month. And in the last half of the book, <clears throat> he switched to an analysis of what he saw as the failure of, of the Labour Party in, in, in the UK to attract as much attention as much support from the general population as you might predict given the dismal conditions of the working class. And he wrote a line in there that I've never forgotten. I'd been working for a mildly socialist party in Canada at the time, I was about 16. Um, you know, Canada has a fairly long history of democratic socialism and, and for a long time, the democratic socialists were a genuine voice for the working class and the, and the working class needs a political voice. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, but Orwell, but I noticed something when I went to the political conventions, and what I noticed was that although many of the leaders that I saw met at that time, because I had, I had fortunate access for reasons I won't go into, actually did seem to be genuinely concerned for the welfare of the working class, the lower level functionaries, especially the activist types, I didn't trust them when I, when I, when I met them. I, I didn't like them. They seemed to me to be mostly peevish and resentful, uh, rather. And so they were motivated by something other than, I would say, sympathy for the working class. And Orwell's, Orwell said in the last half of Road to Wigan Pier that it was obvious that the sort of tweed-wearing middle-class socialist that was typical of, of the English socialist of that period didn't like the poor, he just hated the rich. And I never forgot that because, well, because I, that's, I had observed that. I did, that's, that's what seemed, it seemed to catalyze the intuition that I had and articulate, fully articulate the intuition I had that there was something rotten in the state of Denmark and that what might be passing for empathy was actually masking something far darker. And you know, one thing you do if you're a sensible person is you kind of, you kind of you view your own positive motivations with a bit of skepticism, you know? So if you're running around proclaiming that you're full of empathy for the working class, it's always worth giving some consideration to whether there's darker motives underneath your so-called saintly goodness, because, you know, saintly goodness actually happens to be in rather short supply. And so if you're laying out a claim to that, um, you better be sure you're right. You better be sure you've examined your conscience. And of course, people, you don't, people tend not to do that because it's a rather dismal affair examining your conscience and you tend to find out that there's many dark things going under this, on under the surface that you'd rather not admit. 
And that's certainly the case in our world right now. So I didn't, I, I knew then at, at that point, and, and that really removed me from the political sphere completely for, I would say, 40 years, because I lear learned that I didn't know what the hell I was talking about, which is a painful thing to learn. But in any case, I was quite convinced by Oral's analysis that um, there was something other than brotherly compassion motivating the, hype, the theory that the world could be properly divided into the oppressed and the oppressor, and that all of the suffering of humanity could be laid at the feet of that division. Because there's something convenient about it, you know, especially if you identify yourself as the op oppressed, because it gives you a more instantaneous moral stature, and it gives you the opportunity to act on that hypothetical moral stature. And, um, and then I started to study what happened in the Soviet Union. So, I'm, and I'll tell you about that in a minute, but I'd like to contrast a bit the idea, this, so this would be the classic idea of suffering in the West compared to the, the Marxist idea. And so, you know, in some sense, suffering comes into the world from a mythological or symbolic perspective when Adam and Eve become self-conscious in the Garden of Eden. They become self-conscious. They become aware of their own nakedness, right? And to become aware of your own nakedness is to become aware of your vulnerability. That's why people have nightmares about being naked on stage, you know? And to, to, to know that you're naked is also to know, to be aware of that is to also understand your limitations in time and space. But that's also why Adam and Eve developed the knowledge of good and evil at the same time, which is a very difficult thing to figure out. Because, you see, if you know that you're naked and vulnerable and you know that you can be hurt, which is the same thing, then you know how to hurt other people. And you know that consciously. And that's something that characterizes human beings in a, in a way that no animal is characterized. It, no, no animal has that knowledge. Uh, I mean, animals are predators, but they're not cruel. Now, a human being can be cruel because a human being knows how he or she, himself or herself, can be hurt and hurt badly. And so you can't become self-conscious of your own vulnerability and, and, your, and your mortality without simultaneously becoming a moral agent, essentially. And so that, I th found that very interesting. But anyways, you all know the story, what happens as soon as Adam and Eve have their eyes open and, and make these terrible discoveries, they're, they're cast out of paradise. I mean, and, and that's a story about how painful it is to learn something that's deep and true, because almost always when you learn something deep and true, it's, it breaks your current state of complacency and knocks you for a loop, and maybe you, maybe you recover and maybe you don't. And I would say the entire corpus of the biblical works after the fall is an attempt to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. That's one way of thinking about it, or to return to the paradisal state, or to determine how that might be the case. In any case, God casts Adam and Eve out of paradise, and one of the things he says, he, then he explains to both of them exactly what, what their lives are going to consist of, and what they're going to consist of is a fair bit of suffering and work. You know, and for, for the woman, it's, it's work related to childbearing in, in, in many ways, but also uh, a destiny of, of something approximating subjugation because of her vulnerable state. She's going to be under the dominion of the man. And, and I, I don't think God necessarily says that as a good thing. I mean, it's a curse. The, the whole post-Lapsarian discussion with God is a series of curses. And the man, man of course, um, he doesn't really get off much easier because God points out that he's going to have to work for his living, which is something that only human beings do in, in some real sense. You know, we we forego current pleasures in order to, what, to, to, to uh, 
ensure that the future isn't as horrible as it could be. That's a reasonable way of putting it. And so in that document, which I'm making reference to because it's at the cornerstone of, of the ideas of Western civilization, suffering is something that's endemic to life. And of course you have a choice about what you're going to do about that. One of the things you're supposed to do about that, I suppose in principle if you're um, a Christian, is accept that voluntarily, which is, a, which is a very terrible thing to do. And that's associated, I suppose, with the imitation of Christ and with the idea that everyone has a cross to bear. It's, the idea is that you have to accept that voluntarily, right, and, and take individual responsibility for it. And that's no joke. I mean, that's a, that's a big, that's a hell of a thing to lay at the feet of, of someone that's vulnerable and mortal. You know, it's, you might think that it's only the sort of burden that a god could take on voluntarily. Anyway, so suffering is built into the structure of existence, and there's no one there to blame except the human, what original sin, I suppose that's one way of thinking about it, the, the proclivity of human beings to be self-conscious and to undermine ourselves constantly. It's, it's laid at the feet of, 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 of our, our intrinsic being. It's not someone else's fault. Now, you see that also laid out in the story of Cain and Abel, which is a remarkable story. It's only about a paragraph long. It's one of the most amazingly condensed stories that I've ever seen, ever come across. And Cain really tries to blame his suffering on God. You know, his sacrifices aren't accepted. He doesn't really know why. The story kind of implies that maybe he's not putting his whole heart into it, you know, and he's very angry about the, about the fact that he's breaking himself in half, you know, offering up these vegetables and... Um, God is rejecting them, and whereas Abel, it's like he makes his sacrifices, and God smiles on him, and everybody likes him, and, you know, he's a good guy, too, which is really annoying, because if you're successful, you should at least have the decency to be a jerk about it. So, you know, Cain, Cain goes, has a little chat with God, and he basically says, you know, what kind of stupid universe did you make? Um, here I am breaking myself in half with all my sacrifices, you know, offering, denying myself pleasure in the present so that I can so that I can regulate the future just like I'm supposed to because it's the sacrificial discovery that's equivalent to this discovery of time. That's really something to know. And, you know, God basically tells him that uh, it's his own damn fault that his, that his sacrifices are being rejected and that he's allowed sin to come into his life and in some sense interact with them creatively. There's a sexual metaphor in there. It's as if Cain has invited sin into his house and and, and mated with it in some sense and given rise to some monstrous thing that's now possessing him. So it's a creative union with, with resentment and hatred. And, and uh, so God basically says, well, you know, why don't you go get your own house in order before you criticize the structure of being? And that's exactly what Cain doesn't want to hear. And he's not very happy about it. And his countenance falls, right? And then what does he do? He goes off and kills Abel. And and then, you know, and, 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 and he kills his own ideal, so that's a hell of a thing to do to yourself. You have to be pretty enraged before you'll destroy your own ideal because your life is basically over at that point. And, you know, God says, or Cain says to God, after God gets wind of this, that his punishment is more than he can bear. Um, and then, you know, the next story is the flood. And it's not accidental that those two stories are juxtaposed in that manner because if that way of thinking propagates through the social world, which happens to Cain's descendants, by the way, then all hell breaks loose and everything's washed away. And so, you know, the story set up so interesting that you, you have this, 
initial description of the emergence of suffering into the world. And then right next, the next story is the division of humanity into two warring forces, essentially, one of which is willing to make the proper sacrifices, whatever those happen to be. I know in pe modern people make sacrifices all the time. We've just we've transformed it into a psychological reality. You know, you, you make sacrifices so your children can, can attend university, you know, and immigrant families, first generation immigrants, sacrifice the possibilities they had in their home country for a better life for their children. And we all make bargains with the future, you know, and, and that's a particularly human thing to do. And sometimes our sacrifices don't seem to be accepted and that can make us very bitter. And, you know, that's the Cain and Abel story is a story of that bitterness. And there's a real reason for the bitterness and resentment, but the story makes it quite clear that that is not the proper way to react. Everything, everything is washed away if enough people act that way about the structure of reality. And so, you know, thing you might ask yourself too is, well, how do you know about the Marxist? How do you know if, if most of them had sympathy for the working class? You know, maybe that was genuine. And, and how can you distinguish that from resentment of the successful, let's say, by however, whatever means or along whatever dimension that's defined? And I would say, uh, by the murders. So that's how. Because it seems to me, and this is a case that Solzhenitsyn made very, very clearly in the Gulag Archipelago, which is a book that every high school student in the United States should read, and none do. So none of them know about any of this. And that's an absolute crime, and it's a consequence of the, I would say, leftist domination of the, of the education system. Because it's a crucial document, maybe the crucial document of the 20th century. And we fought a whole Cold War over those issues. We put the planet at risk to to lay that genocidal ideology to rest, and we haven't done it, and that's worth thinking about. But, you know, you'd think, and so Solzhenitsyn, you know, he knew that there were, um, that ideas had, had other ideas wrapped up inside them in some sense, that an idea had a manner of unfolding in time and space, in some sense, like a computer program, once you put it into a computer, it, it had, its, its, its internal logic would reveal itself across time and space, inevitably, and, when the internal logic of Marxism revealed itself, then hundreds of millions of people died. And, you know, it'd be okay if it was just maybe, you know, well, it happened in Russia and nowhere else, but it happened across the Soviet Union, it happened across China, it happened in Vietnam, it happened in Cambodia. It's like, how many damn examples do you meet, need before you think that something's rotten in the state of Denmark? We still got North Korea to deal with. I mean, what kind of place is that? Every, everyone there is starved, what, all the way through the 90s, essentially? It's a monstrous state, and it could still embroil us in an absolute catastrophe. So anyways, as far as I'm concerned, the historical evidence is in, and that, that the idea that the Marxist doctrine is genuinely based on sympathy for the working class is a lie. It's, it's a, it, history itself has shown that that's false. Now, you know, maybe the revolutionaries back in 1917, you know, they didn't know they were, you know, I mean, there was trouble in Russia in 1917, right? I mean, it was an ugly situation. And maybe they had, they had sufficient justification to assume that their utopian vision was a historical possibility. I, I'm not convinced of that, by the way, but I think you could make that case. I think they were motivated by resentment and hatred right from the beginning. But you could make the case that at least they also had the benefit of ignorance, but we don't have that now. It's like, I don't know how much proof you need. If you need more proof than the 20th century provided, then the next layer of proof is going to be the annihilation of everything. 
because we came very, very close to that a number of times, especially in the late 20th century. So I, I'm, I'm buying the resentment and hatred story over the um, we're all possessed by empathy for our fellow suffering human beings story. So especially because I don't think that you get to be good just by adopting the proper ideology. I don't think that's how it works. That's a little bit too simple-minded in my estimation. Being good in a genuine sense is a very difficult thing. You know, it means the opposite of being evil. And like, if, if you don't think evil exists, then you're not awake. And the opposite of evil, since evil is so attractive, is something very, very difficult to attain. And you don't get to portray yourself as good just because you've learned in a week the tenets of, let's say, postmodern neo-Marxist theory, which it, a week is about all it takes to learn them. In fact, you could probably learn them in the afternoon if it was sufficiently propagandistic. Well, so what happened? Well, you know the story. I mean, it's a terrible story. The more you read about what happened in the Soviet Union, I'm not as expert in, in what happened in China, although the death, the death toll in China was larger than the death toll in the Soviet Union, and Mao was an absolute monster. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, the Russians, and this is where the story gets interesting. This happened right in the 20s, you know, so the first, one of the first things that happened after the Russian Revolution is they're gonna collectivize agriculture, and you know, it wasn't that long before that that the Russian, the Russian farmers were serfs, right? They're basically slaves for all intents and purposes. They got freed, you know, 30 years before that, something like that. No, no time, historically speaking. And so a couple of them, had a small percentage of them had struggled up through the serfdom, uh, uh, through the post-serfdom era and had managed to become competent agriculturalists, competent farmers, and you know, maybe they owned a house and a little bit of livestock, and maybe they could even hire someone, you know, so they're, they're the petty, petty bourgeoisie in the, in the hateful communist lingo, and, and you know, the communists unleashed the full force of their propagandistic nightmare on them, and they, they rounded them all up and raped them and shot them and sent them to Siberia in the middle of the winter with no food and killed them all. They killed all the successful farmers in the Ukraine, for example. And that was an absolute catastrophe. And you know, it's really interesting to look at the details because all you have to do is imagine a little town. If you know anything about little towns, you know, maybe there's a couple of people whose success puts them ahead above the rest, you know. And then there's the people in the town who are useless and don't do any work and aren't going to look in the mirror and think that they're useless and resentful and cruel they're gonna look in the mirror and say that they're the victims of, of injustice and that the reason these people are successful is because they're crooked and they've stolen everything. And then the communist Indian intellectuals ride into town and give them an intellectual story that matches their feelings of resentment and all hell breaks loose. And that's exactly what happened. And you know, you don't have to use your imagination very much just to understand how awful that would be. And it was even more awful than you think. And then, of course, what happened was because there was no more farmers left who knew how to farm and collectivization was an absolute bloody catastrophe. Six million Ukrainians died in the 1930s. You know, and if you went out and polled your high school students in the United States, I bet you you wouldn't find one in 20 who know, knows about that. And you got to think, what the hell's going on? How can we not know about that? It wasn't very long ago. You know, it, it was a death toll roughly equivalent to the Holocaust. Now, I mean, the Holocaust had its own set of unique horrors, but there was, it was no, what happened to the Ukrainians in the 1930s, that was no cakewalk. And that was just the beginning, right? You know, and that was kind of blamed on Stalin's cult of personality. But that was, that's a 
what post hoc rationalization for the catastrophic failure of a resentful ideology. And of course, there was the 1956 crackdown on Hungary and the 1968 invasion of Czechoslovakia. And despite the, what would you say, most uh, uh, pious wishes of the bloody Western intellectuals, the Russians, the Soviets kept doing exactly what they shouldn't have done if they were proper moral agents, but the intellectuals, generally speaking, were too hidebound and arrogant and resentful to notice what was happening and to comment on it with very, very, very few exceptions. Orwell had a hell of a time getting Wig and Peer published. You know, it wasn't the sort of thing that the left book club wanted to hear. And it just got worse from there. And I mean, it's not like people didn't know in the West. Malcolm Muggeridge had documented what happened to the Kulaks pretty nicely in the 1920s. Because, you know, it was complicated. We might have hoped that the Russian Revolution would succeed, and then the Russians were our allies in World War II, and you know, the whole Spanish Civil War messed things up from a conceptual perspective. But it wasn't like the intellectuals, the intellectuals could have known. Orwell knew, other people knew, Malcolm Muggeridge knew. So it was head burying in a, in, a, in, a, in a terrible way. It's right, looking the other way when massive crimes were being committed. And the intellectuals in the West bear, bear particular responsibility for that. So anyways, look, by, by the late 1960s, however, the stories that had come out of the, come out of the Soviet Union had, had be, and, and, the, and the historical evidence for their misbehavior had become so overwhelming and so awful that even the most stubborn of idiot French intellectuals had to admit that there was something up, right? And that would include people like Jean-Paul Sartre, who really didn't repudiate the Communist Party till approximately 1968. He wasn't a card-carrying member, but he was certainly a sympathizer. And there were no shortage of sympathizers for Marxism among the French intellectuals, far longer than there was any moral justification for that. And again, I attribute that kind of willful blindness, not only to a tremendous intellectual arrogance, but also to, to the unwillingness to cast aside their essential resentment. So, so what, so then, you know, and then certainly even if it, even if communism, Marxism wasn't completely dead as a moral force by the 1960s, it certainly was dead by 1973, 1974, when Solzhenitsyn published the Gulag Archipelago, because that was a book of unparalleled moral force, and it absolutely demolished whatever moral and intellectual credibility communism had ever had by documenting the causal relationship between the underlying doctrines and the genocidal consequences that followed. And, it, and Solzhenitsyn did it in a way that, well, no one has ever been able to repudiate. I mean, people will call him a reactionary now and, and, and cast aspersions on his, on his name, but that, that doesn't mean they address the underlying argument because they don't, because they can't, because it's not addressable. And so, you know, Solzhenitsyn took an, an axe to the, to the rotting tree and was one of the forces that, that had it fall. And, you know, that was very disturbing to the French intellectual types. They weren't the only people who were trying to propagate the remnants of Marxism in, in the West. There's the Frankfurt School that was made... Uh, made reference to earlier, although I think the postmodernists are a much more insidious force than the Frankfurt School, because their Marxism is more hidden. But um, they basically pulled off an intellectual sleight of hand, which enabled the Western intellectuals, many Western intellectuals, to continue with their narcissistic, resentful, utopian visions under a slightly different name. 
and that's where we got postmodernism, and that's where we got identity politics. And so, what's postmodernism exactly? And well, that's a tricky thing. You know, it's like defining existentialism or phenomenology or any of these other philosophical movements. They're great social transformations, and they manifest themselves in many places. And to try to reduce them to a set number of principles is a very difficult thing. It's, it slips out of your hands, and so any attempt to define is also an oversimplification. But um, nonetheless, we'll proceed with our oversimplification because we have to do that to some degree to think. So, postmodernism is an attitude of skepticism, irony towards and rejection of grand narratives. Well, that's a problem. It's grand narratives that hold cultures together. So, it's fine if you reject them, and you can also point out that they're narratives, and you can also point out that they're, in some sense, grand fictions. And I'm an admirer of fiction, because fiction can tell you the truth sometimes in a way that fact can't, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't read fiction. There would be no such thing as great literature. And so, to call something fiction, in some sense, is not the same as calling it not true. And that's a very important distinction to make. But they reject grand narratives. And that's a problem, because it's the grand narratives that unite us. It's certainly narratives that orient us as individuals. It's shared narratives upon which our society is based. And it's grand shared narratives that allow us to exist in peace within those narratives. So to call those into question is no joke. You don't do it trivially. And it's no different, as far as I'm concerned, than playing oppressor-oppressed politics, in some sense, because the Marxists, what they were trying to do was call the grand narrative, let's say, of Western liberalism and capitalism into question, and the postmodernists did that under a different guise. Now, there were many factors that led to the rise of postmodernism, and I'll talk about some of the other ones, but they also reject ideologies and, and universalism, including objective notions of reason, that's a problem. Human nature, that's a problem. Social progress, absolute truth, and objective reality. Well, you know, that's a long list of things to criticize, right? So we, we gotta walk through that again. They criticize the notion of objective reality. Well, you know, objective reality is a very, very complicated thing, and our knowledge of it is approximate at best. But to criticize the idea that it exists in and of itself is to, is to destabilize us at the, at the at the most fundamental possible level. And I would say that the, the, the fact that that destabilization is an inevitable consequence of postmodern thinking is actually the reason for the postmodern thinking, right? Because, because it's a transformation. Let's, and I'm not inventing the idea that postmodernism is a transformation of Marxism. Derrida, who I would say is the lead jester who, who was running the postmodernist circus, was has stated very clearly that his thought was a transformation and development, further development of Marxism. Um, so, well, objective notions of reason. Well, unless we share notions of reason, we can't communicate. We reject ideas of human nature. Okay, well, they did that in the communist countries. There's no human nature. Well, what does that mean? It means I can make you into anything I want. That's a big problem. You know, because it also replaces human nature with someone's theory of human nature. And if you think you have a theory of human nature that's as grand as human nature itself, then you're exactly the sort of arrogant totalitarian that's going to produce the kinds of theories that devastated the Soviet Union and China. You just do not know enough. You, you can't map yourself. You don't know enough about other people. So even if you have a coherent theory of human nature and it's relatively informed, let's say, scientifically, it's, 
It's fragmentary and partial at best, and there's no way that you can predicate an entire political system, a social system on that. You're just too ignorant. So it's a big problem to criticize the idea of human nature, and that's where you get the idea of social constructionism in part two, which is a, which is a, a, terrible, a terrible force that's invading, I would say, invading our culture at especially at mid-level bureaucracy level, and certainly in the education system, you know, the idea that all of the elements of our identity are nothing but the consequences of enculturation. I mean, the, under, the underlying pathology of that belief is the justification for the people who hold the belief that they have the right to mold human identity in the image that they want to have it molded. So it's like the, the desire is the precondition for the conclusion. It's a very dangerous thing. So. No such thing as social progress. Well, that's the same thing as the dissolution of the, of the meta-narrative. You know, if, if we can't agree on what's good, if we can't agree on what we're aiming at, then we're completely fractionated and divided because it's a shared aim, it's a shared vision that unites people. And I mean that technically, I mean that psychologically. Look, our eyes have evolved so that we can tell where each of us is, are looking because the one thing we want to know about all the other primates that surround us is what the hell they're up to. And one of the ways you figure that out is by looking at their eyes and you see what they're pointing at. And if you're in a society, everyone's eyes are pointing at the same thing. That's what a flag is for, is to indicate a union of purpose. And if there's a union of purpose, then we're all predictable to one another because we know what everybody's up to and that's the same as peace. So you fragment that, you allow that to disappear, you criticize it out of existence and you have an atomized society. And an atomized society is a violent chaos it's not an anarchic utopia. It's an absolute catastrophe. I mean, you lose that hierarchical organization. You know, hierarchies, which the postmodernists uh, uh, criticize nonstop, hierarchies, speaking biologically, are at least 350 million years old. They're older than trees. Every animal that's evolved virtually exists within a hierarchy because it's the only way that animals can share a domain, a territory, without constantly destroying each other. And so the attack on the idea of hierarchy, you know, in the guise of the patriarchy, which is so absurd that, it, that it's, it, it's, it's an idea that's absurd. You, you couldn't invent it. If it didn't exist, there's no way you could dream it up. It's an idea that's that absurd because the, the hierarchical organization of society is something far older than human beings. It's a basic truth. And to consider that the cause of all human suffering, when in fact it's the, it's the cure for much human suffering, is another indication of the actual motives of the people who are putting the theories forward. Tear everything down. Well, then everyone's equal. Everyone's equal when everything's on fire and everyone's starving in the streets. You know, or at least they're equal in all the important ways. So... No absolute truth, no objective reality. Well, that means that there's no way of, of determining who is right and wrong in an argument. There's no, there's no higher authority to, to appeal to. You know, and even if you're an atheist, a materialist, scientific type, at least you grip the idea of an objective reality that stands outside your theorizing. The postmodernists dispense with all of that. And so there's no way of telling who's right and there's no way of telling who's wrong. There's a tremendous anarchic consequence of that. And, and the previous speaker referred to that as well, as if there's no truth that, that we all ne are nested inside, let's say, then there's no communication between people. 
because there's nothing that can, can unite us, and that's exactly why the world of the postmodernist neo-Marxist is a Hobbesian nightmare of competing power hierarchies. And that's another thing that's so terrible about their theory is they're, they're absolutely convinced that all hierarchies are a consequence of power. Now, you know, power is ill-defined, but you might as well just use tyranny, because that's the idea about the patriarchy, right? The patriarchy is a tyrannical hierarchy. And so the idea is that human hierarchies are based on nothing but tyrannical power. They throw out the idea of competence. You know, most non-tyrannical hierarchies are based on competence, not power. You define tyranny as a hierarchy that's based on power and not competence. And you know, the evidence that the hierarchies in the Western world at least are predicated on competence is the fact that the damn lights are on and there isn't rioting in the streets and, and the planes stay in the air most of the time and everything functions. And people, even postmodernists, you know, they're going to look for the best brain surgeon if they happen to have cancer, that they happen to need an operation, they're not going to dispense with the idea of competence when their life hangs in the balance. But it, when, it, when it comes to being able to justify their anarchic tendencies and their desire to tear everything apart, they'll de deny the idea of competence altogether. And you know, that, what, that, that, that's so terrible, it's almost unimaginable, because it destroys the concept of value itself, right? Because to erect a hierarchy of competency is to say, this mode of action is more functionally appropriate, at least. Or you could say better. This mode of action is better than this mode of action. And if you don't have any distinction between modes of action that are better or worse, then you have no direction in your life, right? Because it's, that, it's the distinction between things in terms of quality that gives direction to your life. And that's what gives meaning, positive meaning to your life. So if you eradicate the competence hierarchy, you blow out the value structure, then no one has anything to aim for. And all there is is chaos. You wonder why people are depressed and why they're nihilistic, especially after they go through enough university tra postmodern training. I mean, if you understand that and you swallow it, then there's no up and there's no down. And, you know, that's another reason why it's so useful to consider the view in Genesis of human suffering. It's intrinsic to the nature of human existence. And if you don't have a positive value to set against that, right, something to struggle for and something to live for, then all you have is the suffering. Well, that's not good, you know, if an animal, if a human being has nothing but suffering, then what's that going to do to them? Well, they get embittered, that's for sure. And that's what happens to people who don't have any meaning in their life. They get embittered, and then they get vengeful, and then they get murderous, and then they get genocidal. It's not a good thing. So Derrida and Foucault and the rest of those French monsters, you know, they defined hierarchy as power, an absolutely pathological sleight of hand, they destroyed the idea of hierarchies of competence by undermining the idea of an objective world. And these things are all linked together. That was a destruction of the idea of competence itself and destruction of the idea of the world. Everything's interpretation. There's no human nature. Everything's socially constructed. And, you know, you see this even in small ways. When, when the, and they're, they'll be teaching your kids this in elementary school in no time flat because it's already happening in Canada. So, you, like... If it hasn't happened here, it's going to, and it'll be within the next two or three years. They're starting to teach kids postmodern literary criticism as the, initial, as the initiation into literature appreciation. And if you're a postmodern literary critic, there's no great works, because there's no great. 
If, 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 if you say Dostoevsky's great, it's because you're a white supremacist and you, you've elevated the, the Caucasian literary figures arbitrarily to support the domination of your own power group. And, the re, and if you take Dostoevsky apart, you don't look for what the author meant because there's no author meaning. You look for how the author's works supports the power structure in which he was embedded. And that's all there is to literature. So that's coming along quite nicely. So, according to the New Radicals, the Enlightenment-inspired ideas that have previously structured our world, this is a quote, by the way, according to the New Radicals, the Enlightenment-inspired ideas that have previously structured our world, especially the legal and academic parts of it, are a fraud perpetrated and perpetuated by white males to consolidate their own power. And those who disagree with that statement are not only blind, but bigoted. The Enlightenment's goal of an objective and reasoned basis for knowledge, merit, truth, justice, and the like is an impossibility. Objectivity, in the sense of standards of judgment that transcend individual perspectives, does not exist. Reason is just another code word for the views of the privileged. The Enlightenment itself merely replaced one socially constructed view of reality with another, mistaking power for knowledge. There is nothing but power. That's from Daniel Farber and Suzanne Sherry, Beyond All Reason. It's, it was quoted in the New York Times. Not but power. Well, then you might think about that one for a minute, too, because is there, you know, if you formulate a, a political doctrine, or let's say an ontological or epistemological doctrine even more deeply, that says there's nothing but power, then what do you do with the people who hypothetically oppose you? Well, obviously, you use force on them because there's nothing but power. And so, if the, if the only reason that they exist and have their positions of privilege is because they've dominated through tyranny and power, you're fully justified in using that force against them. Well, especially if that's all there is. And that is all there is in the, in the postmodern nihilistic Hobbesian nightmare. It's, it's groups, groups of people united by their, by, by their, well, this is where it gets murky, by their group identity, whatever that is, it's socially constructed when that's convenient. They're, so anyways, there's no individuals, there's just groups, and the groups cannot communicate with one another because there's really no way of engaging in reasoned discourse between groups of disparate origin. That's just, that's just, that's just part of the overarching white male patriarchy's uh, justification for holding on to their power claims. They, they've formulated this theory that discourse between different groups is possible to make the system look less tyrannical than it actually is. This is the sort of thing that your kids are being taught in university. So, identity politics is the division of society into groups which cannot communicate or cooperate. Well, you know, this, this, is a, this is a big problem. You think, well, why is this, why is this happening exactly? Like, what's going on? Because that's what we're trying to figure out, right? What's going on? Well, I talked to you about Marxism. I talked to you about the worldview that underlies Marxism, which is predicated fundamentally on resentment for differences in the world. And I mean, look, we've got to take that with a bit of sympathy, you know? It's not like the world is fair. It's tragedy-ridden, it's unfair, and there's malevolence everywhere. Now, that's not surprising to those of you who consider themselves Christian. I mean, that's, that's a basic part of the doctrine. But that doesn't mean it's palatable. I mean, people differ in all sorts of important ways that have 
non-trivial effects on their life outcome. They, in fact, they differ in innumerable ways, which is actually part of the technical and methodological problems of postmodernism. I mean, think about the difference. Here, here's differences. You know, and you might say, well, some of these are your own doing, and maybe they are and maybe they aren't, but a lot of them are, let's say, gifts of God, for lack of a better terminology. One of the biggest differentiators between people with regards to their long-term success, far more important, by the way, than race, is intelligence. Intelligence has a very powerful biological basis. So, you know, and it's, it's funny because there's plenty of modern academics who deny the existence of biological intelligence, and I think that's because they like to think that they got to their positions by pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. You know, there's, there's no gratitude in that. They don't think, well, I was given a gift, and I, it's not like I earned it. It, it was part of, my, it was part of my, my, the structure of my being, the given structure of my being. You know, you could have a little humility in the face of that. Well, so people differ by intelligence, they differ by temperament, some people are extroverted, some people aren't, some people are very, very sensitive to negative emotion, others are very emotionally stable, some people are compassionate and polite, and some people are disagreeable and competitive, some people are conscientious and others aren't, and some people are creative. And all of those have major effects on the way that life unfolds. There's, there's accidents of geography. I mean, here we are in the first world. Well, that's a good deal for us, isn't it? Because the infrastructure's in place. It, it's the there's an arbitrariness that, to that that the existentialists called thrownness. And you can't really attribute that to your own doing. It's something to be grateful for and to recognize. And the same with regards to your positioning in historical time. You want to go back to, to like the 1400s or the 1300s? It seems unlikely. I mean, people worked, even in 1890s, they worked so damn hard that modern people can hardly even imagine it, right? I think one day in the life of a, a frontier pioneer would kill most of us in this room. Or if it didn't kill us, we'd at least wish we were dead. Well, then there's attractiveness. Attractive people do far better in life. And, you know, it's just no joke to be cursed with, with ugliness. And, and that's a major differentiator. And, well, the youth have advantages over the old, right? And, I mean, when you're old, maybe you're rich because actually being old is a pretty good predictor of being rich, as it turns out, given that you've had a whole life to gather up resources. But I suspect it's the rare old rich person who wouldn't trade in all their money for a young body. So it's not exactly obvious who's got the upper hand there. The old person has the fruits of their labor, but the young person has the potential of the future, and you can't buy that. Health, well, you know, everybody knows people who are promising in six different ways who basically got caught off at the knees by some, you know, incomprehensibly arbitrary tragedy and cut their life short or produced an excess of suffering. Different sexes have different advantages. You know, women can have children. They're mul they can have multiple orgasms. It's not a trivial thing in the entire course of life. You know, men are bigger and stronger, but they die sooner. Women live about eight years longer. That's actually quite an advantage. Some people are athletic. Other people are weak. Some people are born wealthy. It's better to be born intelligent, by the way. If you're looking at future prediction, it's better to be born intelligent than to be born wealthy, at least in Western societies. Some people have an intact family structure and others don't. Some people have friends, some people don't. And we differ from an educational perspective. Those are major dimensions of difference, right? And they're all really relevant and important and they have a major impact on how our lives unfold across time. And the consequence of that is massively unequal distribution of socioeconomic resources. Now, that's not the only 
measure by which life should be assessed. Far from it. And that's another problem that I have with the radical leftists, that even though they're anti-capitalist to the extreme, they are also convinced that money solves all of the world's problems, and that's just not true. There's lots of, there's lots of problems that money makes worse, and certainly many problems that money can't solve. But, you know, the funny thing is, even with all these dimensions of difference, the only thing that's really been concentrated on, well, race is the big one, gets sexual identity, uh, uh, race and gender. Those seem to be the big three, and it's not exactly obvious why. It's the one part of this talk that I haven't really been able to crack, you know? It's like, I don't know what the, why the focus is there, although I do know that the reason that intersectionality has emerged within the postmodernist corpus is because the, the, the theorists themselves have started to understand that there's an infinite number of dimensions across which people differ, which is actually why the West invented the concept of individuality to begin with. Because if you fractionate groups down to the ultimate, ultimate what, atomic level, you end up with the individual, and you have to treat the individual as a unique nexus of, of factors. And so, well, and so the, the, inter, in, the logical consequence of intersectionality taken to its final conclusion is the individualism of the West, which I think is extraordinarily funny, although I'm not sure we're going we're gonna to make it to the point where we rediscover that. But anyways, race has become the major issue. Why race? I don't know. Maybe it aligns most evidently with the oppressor-oppressed narrative. Maybe it's, the, maybe it's the simplest way that people can be divided apart from sex. Um, but it does beg the issue. Well, what do you do with all these other dimensions of, of individual difference? You know, and this also shows you the absolutely appalling scholarship that characterizes so much of the postmodern work, you know? So, look, there are all sorts of arbitrary reasons, semi-arbitrary, let's say, that determine our, our movement up status hierarchies or competence hierarchies as we move through life. You know, and the other thing to understand is that your position in a competence hierarchy isn't an award that's given to you because of your intrinsic worth. That's the wrong way of thinking about it. The reason that you get promoted up a competence hierarchy is because other people want to maximize the value you can produce for society. That's why you get paid. It's not an award, right? And so, and that's a much better way to think about it because the more, most intelligent thing to do, even if there are arbitrary reasons for competence differences, is to place the most competent people where they can do the best job because that's best for everyone else. And if you have to pay them a bit more to motivate them, well, that's the price you pay for extracting the value that they can give to you and to the other members of society. It's not an award. It's not altruism. It's none, it's none of that. It's cold-hearted um, individual and social preservation. And it's the right motive. It lines everyone's uh, motivations up properly. So, all right. So I'm going to talk to you now a little, about, little bit about white privilege. Okay, because that's the that's the most egregious example of poor scholarship, as well as the logical conclusion of the dialogue about race. So we're all groups, racial groups, ethnic groups, gender groups. We can't talk to each other. We're all involved in a power struggle across which there's no communication. And uh, the white people, roughly speaking, have it best. And so this is Peggy McIntosh. She's all smiles. As Shakespeare said, you can smile and smile and smile and still be a villain. So that's how I look at this photograph. She's a nice grandmotherly type, but, you know, that just doesn't cut it when you're talking about things like this. She's associate director of the Wellesley College Center for Research on Women. Research, yeah. 
This essay is excerpted from Working Paper 189, White Privilege and Male Privilege, a personal account of coming to see correspondences through work in women's studies. The working paper contains a longer list of privileges. Okay, well, what's your methodology for laying out what constitutes white privilege? The papers rely on personal examples of unearned advantage, as Macintosh says, she experienced in the 1970s and the 1980s. You know, in, in a social science, a reasonably well-developed social science, such as psychology, that gives you a failing grade in the first research project you do. You know, this is, at best, that's a hypothesis. At best, right? And just, it's derived from your, it's a weak hypothesis, because if you're going to formulate a hypothesis, it can't just be what you think. You should go do a little research and inform it even before you get the damn hypothesis generated. And then you have to go actually do the testing to see if your hypothesis holds up. Like we could say, well, racial discrimination plays some role in, in unfair inequality in the West. It's like, okay, probably, right? For all sorts of reasons. Well, how much? Exactly. Like really, exactly. Is it more important than Intelligence or less important? What about attractiveness? Do we know? Do, do we know how much of the variance in, in outcomes it, it actually produces? We need to know these things. No, no, you know, it's okay if you're a postmodernist, especially if you're working in an appalling field like women's studies, you can just use your own personal experience and that's good enough. This is an incredibly influential piece of work she produced. This, here's the white privilege list. I'm not gonna go through it completely. I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. If I should need to move, I can be pretty sure of renting or purchasing housing in an area which I can afford and in which I would want to live. I can be pretty sure that my neighbors in such a location will be neutral or pleasant to me. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. I can turn on the television or open to the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. When I'm told about our national heritage or about civilization, I'm shown that people of my color made it what it is. Okay, methodological critiques. First of all, we don't know how many instances she's actually providing, right? Because it's a list of so-called privileges, but many of them are manifestations of the same underlying so-called privilege. So the fact that there's, say, seven listed here doesn't mean that the understructure of what she's talking about can actually be enumerated in that manner. It's basic social science, right? That, that sort of technology for clarifying what constitutes a measurement device of this sort has been instantiated since the 1960s. She doesn't know it, she doesn't care, neither do any of the people who follow this. Okay, and then let's, let's think about this. It's like, why exactly is this white privilege? I don't quite get that. Why isn't it majority privilege? You know, like that's really different. It's like, well, you think that's not true if you're Chinese in China? So what if, what if you're black in a black African country? You know, or Hispanic in a Hispanic country? Aren't all these things true? Well, if they're true, then it's, I mean, there might be privilege, but we've already established that. There is privilege. There's differences between people, and all the differences aren't fair. We've established that. Well, terminology matters. Well, you know, it seems to me that these all flow from the mere fact that in any civilization, there's a certain amount of homogeneity that constitutes the majority, and that the majority is most comfortable in a society that was produced by the majority. It's like the definition of civilization. So to attribute that to something like systemic racism, which is another term I just absolutely despise, 
and which is making headway in Canada like you wouldn't believe. So you know what, we have a very peaceful country. We've had very little racial tension, but we're working hard to solve that problem, I can tell you. <laughs> so, I won't read you the rest of these. You can take a look online, you know, uh, white privilege and male privilege, a personal account, God, of coming to see correspondences through work in women's studies. Well, all this idea of white privilege came out of her working paper. Like, as an academic document, it's appalling beyond belief, you know. And, and this is a real failure of the universities because they've allowed these pseudo-disciplines to multiply. And, and they've become unbelievably dominant. And it's, it's, it's a, as a member of the academy, I'm, I'm deeply ashamed and embarrassed that that's the case. Like, every intellectual in the damn country should apologize for what the universities are doing to society under the guise of these absolutely appalling doctrines based on Meth no methodological sophistication whatsoever, absolute domination of ideological theory, no understanding whatsoever of history. It's absolutely embarrassing. But you can smile about it, and that's the important thing. <laughs> All right, so, so anyways, I gave you a bit of a critique about the idea of white privilege, and you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's just an attempt to, uh, what would you say, augment the reality of the postmodern worldview, which means, you know, if we differ across races or ethnicity, then we can't communicate. And that's an attempt to fragment the society. And that's an extension of the Marxist desire to uproot the entire structure and start again under the guise of, hypothetically, of equality and sympathy for the, well, it was at one point, let's say, the working poor, but really driven by a resentment that's really as old as mankind itself. That's the right way of thinking about it, as far as I can tell. And as I said, the proof of that is in the genocides. You've got to think about what you're willing to accept as proof. Like, for me, the fact that 40 million, 60 million, something like that, 20 million, no one knows, were killed in the Soviet Union as these ideas were instantiated, that was enough proof that there was something wrong. You know, and if that's not enough proof for you, well, then you might ask yourself exactly what it would require to prove your theory wrong. How many tens of millions of people would have to die before you would admit that there's something wrong with the way that you're construing the world? It's a decent question. You know, I had a talk on free speech cancelled. <laughs> I had a talk on the suppression of free speech at university campuses cancelled by a university in August. And the people who got it cancelled, yeah, it was pretty funny, all right. Um, the people who cancelled it came out and had a little after-party and a bunch of them came out with a hammer and sickle banner, you know, because they were communists and, you know, the media covered that to some degree and, like, if they would have come out with a swastika, there would have been a hell to pay, but a hammer and sickle, man, that's everyone's friend. It's like bringing your girlfriend a bouquet of roses, you know. There's nothing wrong with communism apart from the hundred million people it slaughtered. It's like, I don't know what the hell's wrong with us. You know, and I've, I've, tried to, I've tried to puzzle this out. Like, why? It's, it's pretty obvious why the Nazis have a bad name. Like, we really don't have to go into that. But it's not so damn obvious why the communists, the Marxists, don't have an equally bad name. And that students can come out and protest with the hammer and sickle intact and act morally virtuous. And people don't recoil from that in, in, with absolute repugnance, which is, of course, the right, right approach. It's a very hard thing to figure out. So, I mean, maybe it has something to do with the universal utopian dream. It's at least universal, whereas the Nazi utopian dream was so delimited, you know, that there was something more, I don't know, aggressively evil about it, or obviously evil about it. Maybe it's that. But the net consequence was, I mean, from, a, from the perspective of numbers of people dead and horror 
and horror, uh, in, 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 uh, what would you say, inflicted on the world. It's very difficult to tell the two apart. So, all right, so then the next question is, well, there's liberals, right? And I'm a liberal, I'm a classic liberal. And conservatives have a pretty good time making borders between things. It's actually one of the hallmarks of conservative thinking, but the left-leaning liberal types aren't very good at that from a temperamental perspective. And so, you know, when uh, back when uh, William F. Buckley had made the National Review, the John Birchers were trying to affiliate themselves with him, and he said, no, 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 you, you guys aren't part of what I'm doing, you know? He, cut, he drew a line, and the same thing happened pretty fast after Charlottesville, when people like Ben Shapiro came out and said, yeah, yeah, no, Nazis, yeah, how about no? White supremacists, now nah, we're done with that. that. That's not part of the conservatism that I represent. Well, the liberals need to do the same damn thing, but they're not very good at it. So I've got a basic primer here for all the liberals who might be paying attention to this at one point or another, how to identify the people from whom they should be rapidly dissociated. And this is the terminology. Equality, diversity, inclusivity, equity. That's a bad one. That means equality of outcome. And, that, and in that term, equality of outcome is nested all the horrors of Marxism. And white privilege is another one. You know, and, and you might, then I would also say with regards to white privilege, let's get it clear, eh? How about we do this? How about we decide what actually constitutes racism? It's pretty bloody straightforward. It's the attribution of a set of attributes <laughs> to someone based on their skin color. And so to say that because you're white, and that's actually a quite difficult thing to define, that you're somehow characterized by privilege, and that that privilege is associated with guilt for, for historical crimes, that's racism. You see, to attribute to the individual the characteristics of one of the groups to which they happen to belong in some sense, that's the thing we're supposed to be fighting. And to talk about white privilege is precisely that. It's racist, period. And obviously, self-evidently, because, well, look, it's based on race. You know, and there's, the thing is, there's so many differences between people. There's so many differences between people. You can't just do that. You can't pull someone out and say, well, you're the member of this homogenous category system, and I can ignore all your heterogeneity, the diversity that the left, radical left is always talking about. I can ignore all that diversity, and I can attribute to you this set of properties, including your, let's call it, class guilt, for, let, for back of, lack of a better term. If you want a formula that will break your society up in pieces, then that's the formula. And then you might also understand that the people who derive those formulas, that's exactly what they're aiming at. So it's not any, it's not chance. And you might say, well, do all these neo-Marxist types know what they're doing? And the answer to that is, well, not, not at all. No, no more than every Christian is a theologian or every Muslim understands the full doctrine of Islam. That just doesn't happen because we're pretty ignorant. So, you know, you take the typical social justice activist and you pull them out of their mob and it's like, you know, they're your neighbor's daughter and 80% of the time or 90% of the time they're a fully rational human being abiding by the general rules of the state. But if you get a hundred of them together in a mob, then all the fragmented pieces of the postmodern doctrine manifest themselves in unity and then look the hell out. Because it's the idea that's got the mob. 
And the idea that's got the mob is not an idea that's conducive to the survival of our civilization or peace. So we better bloody well wake up and do something about that. Now, partly what I've been doing, and this is quite interesting, this, and I'll, I'll stop with this. You know, for the last year, I've been in a very big political battle in Canada, and it's by no means over. That's beside the point. I don't even like being in political battles, but sometimes there's no choice. But I've been trying to figure out, like, increasing the polarization, which is something I've been accused of, obviously isn't helpful. It's not working in the United States, that's for sure. It's not working in Europe. It's not working in Canada. So it's not a good idea. And so, and, and sometimes to engage in the war at, to engage in the war at all, the battle of ideas is to, is not to win, but to engage at all is to lose because you increase the polarity. And so what I've been doing, I, I, I learned about this when I wrote my first book, which was called Maps of Meaning. Um, I was looking for a third way, you know, between nihilism and, and group identification. What, what, could, what could be an alternative to those two? Because you need to identify with your group in some sense to have a purpose, right? That, that's being a civilized and socialized person. And if you lose that, then you descend into nihilism, and that's not good, but nihilism can kill you, and group identity can become totalitarianism. That's not good. What's the alternative? So I've been going around, well, on my YouTube videos, and then in my public statements, I've been talking to especially young men, because they're the ones who are coming to see me, weirdly enough, about responsibility and about truth. You know, and, and this is something that conservatives need to take note of. It's really, and I'm going to talk to the conservatives in Canada about this, or I have been to some degree, and I think I'm doing, doing that again in September. But for the first time in, that I remember, conservative types, even centrists, because I would regard myself essentially as a centrist, have something genuine to sell to young people. It's something that no one is selling to them, and that's like responsibility. Responsibility gives your life meaning. It's like shoulder your damn burden, stand up, quit whining, don't be a victim, put yourself together, contribute to the world, accept responsibility, speak the truth, put the world together. Don't identify with your damn group, and don't, per don't perceive yourself as a victim. It, it entitles you to resentful vengeance, and it makes you weak. Why would you want to do that? Of course you're a damn victim. It's built into the structure of reality. Well, that doesn't mean you get to go all... It doesn't mean you get to get murderous about it. It just makes it worse. So you got the motivation, like life is hard. There's no doubt about that, and certainly not fair in, in, in any of multiple dimensions. Well, how are you going to respond to that? Are you going to stand up? and be useful? You're going to take that on voluntarily? Like that's what it means to shoulder the cross, you know? It means to take on the burden of suffering and malevolence individually and voluntarily. Well, people are dying for that message, man. You just can't believe how hungry young people are for that message. It's absolutely overwhelming. So that's, that's we have to go back to the individual. We have to go back to the individual as the center of the cosmos, right? That, that, that image of God that the previous speaker talked about that brings order out of chaos through the power of truthful speech. That's the core idea of Western civilization. And it's the greatest idea that, that humanity has ever produced. And we can't lose sight of it. Because if we lose sight of it, we're going to lose everything. And that, that with all our technological power, losing everything is going to be one awful show. So... That's all I have to say about that. Thank you. Ooh.